We launched the effort by making sure that we had a separate spec and an implementation of the spec because we felt as though you know, the world is pretty darn big and there's going to be plenty of organizations and plenty of people with great ideas that might not necessarily all be convergent. So we wanted to make sure that the specification was out there for people to rally around and, and decide which you know, implementation made sense. You are listening to the Kubeless Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for CNCF Sandbox, Incubating and Graduated Projects. We'll discuss each project to understand where it came from and discuss the roadmap and plans to continue the project. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. I publish the Kubeless weekly newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like Puppet, Harness, HashiCorp, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. The Kubeless podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Finally, sign up for the Kubeless weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kubeless.com. Today, I had an opportunity to spend some time with Sunil James from HPE about two different CNCF projects, Spiffy and Spire. Sunil was a founder at Sytale, the company behind these projects. Sytale was acquired by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, where development of the Spiffy Inspire projects is continuing today. If you haven't heard of Spiffy or are not familiar with it, it's a project to simplify identity for microservices in order to build a more secure production infrastructure. Spiffy is the spec, Inspire is an implementation of the Spiffy spec. Secure microservice identity is a hard problem to solve, but Sunil does a great job explaining what the project is and some of the hard problems that the team had to solve when building it. Sunil goes on to explain why this is a problem now and how to get started using Spiffy Inspire. The conversation does get a little technical when Sunil is explaining how Spiffy works, but if you're listening to this podcast, I think you're going to follow along just fine. I learned a lot about both the Spiffy and the Spire projects during this conversation, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So I'm here today with Sunil James, a senior director within HPE's newly formed security engineering organization to learn more about Spiffy Inspire. Welcome, Sunil. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. So to help us get started, Sunil, help me understand the path you took to getting into HPE and working on Spiffy Inspire before we dive into the details of the projects. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, so Cytale uh, was a company that myself and my co-founders formed in early 2017. We started the company because we were spending quite a bit of time with enterprises that were beginning to adopt or look at technologies like Kubernetes and container orchestrators, container runtime like Docker, and we're starting to rethink how they're going to re-architect some of their application development platforms for use with these kinds of technologies. One of the areas that was an area of interest to us in particular was this idea of authentication, specifically how do you authenticate one service to another service and how that would have to change in the future. And so we started to work on building a company to tackle that problem. And along the way, we also helped to bring to life a number of great open source technologies, such as Spiffy and Spire, which we're going to talk about today. We sold the company to HP Enterprise in Q1 of uh, 2020. And inside of the organization, our mission is to continue to build trust into all of our products and through our products to our end customer offerings. And Spiffy and Spire remain essential components of all that. Great. So let's let's dive in a little bit. You know, I'd love to understand more like Spiffy Inspire. There's two different projects. Um, one's a spec and one's the implementation of the spec. Could you 
at a high level, let's start there. Just explain what the spiffy spec is trying to declare and, and what its intent is. Yeah, sure. So the spiffy specification is fundamentally a specification that's designed to help create this idea of universal identity control plane for for these distributed systems that we're talking about here. And so SPIFI itself is an acronym. It stands for Secure Production Identity Framework for Everyone. It's a, it's a play on some uh, naming conventions inside of Google that I was privy to when I was at Google prior to starting Cytail. So you could think of it as this you know, set of specifications to create a framework that you know, is capable of then bootstrapping and issuing identity to services across heterogeneous environments and different boundaries. And so there's a number of specifications, but the one specification that kind of is at the core of it is this idea of a short-lived cryptographic identity document called the SVID, or the Spiffy Verifiable Identity Document. And so what ends up happening is that this document is what captures and holds the specific spiffy identity that can then be used to identify a workload when it's authenticating to other workloads, or if it needs to establish TLS connections, or it needs to be verified using JWT tokens and things of that sort. So spiffy is, is basically fundamentally that. So maybe we'll start even further up, right? An identity in the world of spiffy is called a spiffy ID. Okay, and that is it's a string that is designed to uniquely and specifically identify a given workload, right? So these IDs can also be assigned to intermediate systems, such as a group of virtual machines, but they can also be used to identify in any given individual instance of some workload, like a container or what have you. And these spiffy IDs, they kind of look like, you know, they come in the form of URIs, and so they can have like this naming convention. And that looks very similar to DNS, except in our case, you know, we start off with spiffy colon slash slash, and then the rest of it is broken up into two parts. So if you had something like spiffy colon slash slash acme.com slash billing slash payments, the acme.com defines the trust domain for the identity itself. So the, the domain within which these identities are being issued and verified. And then everything after the dot com and after that slash, it's considered to be you know components of the workload identifier itself, which uniquely identifies that workload within the trust domain itself. And so that hierarchy can go as deep as you want. We didn't make that as prescriptive as others might have expected because we didn't know what types of conventions were going to be used across the enterprise landscape to, to define that. Okay, so that's what the spiffy ID is. And the spiffy specification kind of goes into much greater details about that format and the use of, of spiffy IDs itself. Now, that ID is then encoded into this thing called the spiffy verifiable identity document. Okay, it's a document with which a workload uses to prove its identity to a resource or some sort of a caller. And an SVID is considered valid if it has been signed by an authority within the Spiffy ID's trust domain, okay? And there's a one-to-one mapping between an SVID and a single Spiffy ID, okay? And as I said beforehand, that Spiffy ID comes in the form of that URI naming convention. When we were early on defining these specifications, we needed to make sure that there was some sort of a, you know, ideally universally understandable transport mechanism through which we can actually, you know, ship these IDs from system to system. 
And so one of the two currently supported formats was in the form of an X509 certificate. So inside of an X509 certificate, there's a, a subsection called the subject alternate name field. And inside of the subject alternate name field is where we actually place that SVID document itself. And we chose that location because X509s are generally supported across various SSL and TLS libraries out there. We didn't have to really, you know, kind of change any kind of implementations. It would just pick up and parse that part of the X509 transparently so that we get to kind of go along for the ride uh, and then make sure these documents are carried back and forth. And then we also have an encoding within JSON web tokens as well because there might be situations whereby you can't terminate the connection with an X509. You have to actually punch through something like a load balancer or an API gateway. And so the JOT itself it actually carries that identity document all the way through to the back end itself, wherever it might be. So let me stop there and see if that, that broadly makes sense. I think so. So I have a Kubernetes cluster. I have microservices. And so a request comes in. That request has to go out to various different microservices to fulfill the request, some synchronously, some asynchronously. And the SVID is encoded in that protocol, whatever the protocol is, HTTP-based, but it could be a JOT token, it could be whatever, in order to identify and authorize that workload at the various layers of the microservices. Is that, is that what you just described? Yeah, so you use the word authorization, which you know is kind of the third <laughs> third rail in our world. You know, one of the early things that we worked on with the open source community that we had back in 2017, and you know, probably for the better part of 2017, was to create a hard delineation between authentication and identity, separate from authorization. Right. So for us and for Spiffy, Spiffy is about making sure that we can uniquely identify and attest. Uh, the provenance of a given workload and then assign to it a strongly secure identity that's universally understandable. That document can then be built upon by other downstream authorization systems to be able to define what types of privileges should be associated with that identity, right? So Spiffy Inspire, its implementation, do not necessarily reason about the authorization aspects of it. We leave that to other systems, of which there are many inside the enterprise landscape today. So, But generally speaking, that is correct, right? The idea here is that the spiffy standards create a common ubiquitous way to identify a workload, you know, regardless of the infrastructure you're deploying it on, whether it's private cloud behind your data center whether it's public cloud and AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, and also regardless of the, the platform that you're using to kind of orchestrate your workload. So you can choose to use Spiffy with bare metal instances. You could choose to use it with vanilla VMs. You can choose to use it with containers. And we're actually just spinning up a subgroup to start evaluating the use of Spiffy in the context of serverless and functions as well. Okay, so... Maybe a really basic question. So I have my Kubernetes cluster running, and I've implemented microservices and handling, re- sending the requests back. I have a service mesh. I have whatever it is that that I have, and I'm handling all these requests. But these backend microservices are only available inside the cluster. There's no ingress into them. Why is strong identity important in that world? Yeah. So a couple of reasons why. Even the presumption that there is no backend access, I think, is a bit of a misnomer, right? Because even in a world where You've got Kubernetes clusters that are instantiated. You know, egress mechanisms exist. You still have communication patterns that exist between container to container, off node to off node. 
that are still going to have some level of, of discourse and conversation that's happening. And that's not always going to happen necessarily entirely within the cluster itself, right? So in an ideal world, yeah, you'd have everything running instead of a Kubernetes cluster. The Kubernetes cluster has got you know, implemented with all of its its own unique security capabilities, and then itself is surrounded by, you know, an increasing layer of security control points that hopefully do a decent job of ensuring that an attacker cannot necessarily find its way into a workload and somehow compromise it to be able to, you know, usurp data, keys, uh, privilege information, PII, or whatever it might be. One of the things that we're trying to to build into this world of microservices architectures, a lot of the, one of the things that enterprises are trying to do is they're trying to implement, you know, a set of more granular kind of key-based, secret-based authentication mechanisms between any given service talking to any other service. So in a legacy world, a lot of financial services, government customers, and the like would have utilized technologies like Kerberos. And so for many people that are you know, have been around the block and have worked with Windows NT 3.5, 4.0 systems going back many, many years, Kerberos is underlying you know, tokening system that can be used to grant time-bound tokens and scope-bound tokens for a given system to be able to make a request to another system. And then when that token you know, TTL effectively comes to an end, and it has to go back, fetch a new token, so that there is always some sort of a last mile check to ensure that this thing is allowed to actually be able to communicate with something else because it holds a token in and of itself. That model is a model that's now baked and embedded within a lot of industry standards that still, you know, as enterprises move into the cloud, they'd like to be able to continue to use that. And so with Spiffy, it's effectively giving you the ability to kind of emulate those same types of systems, except it does so at scale and it's pretty much completely automated, right? So it's designed to serve as a centralized platform identity service that can allow for you as a central security engineering team or a DevOps team or whoever is the one that's responsible for defining some of these security controls, a centralized way to almost whitelist what are the types of workloads that should or should not be running in any given workload and then defining the at- and then using the set of attributes available from the infrastructure to attest that identity and then use spire to basically automatically run this system so that anytime a workload spins up on any platform rather than have it preloaded with some pre-shared key or some static token or some static secret or whatever it might be it can be born almost naked right and then it the first thing it does is it can go initiate a set of calls down to the Aspire infrastructure so that it bootstraps trust from the get-go, it gets its credentials or whatever it needs, and then it uses that to initiate authenticated communications to any other system. And the good thing in microservices architectures is that instead of just relying on you know, that authentication flow to happen in back-end client libraries that are embedded within the application itself, you can take advantage of things like Envoy, right? Envoy is a is a popular open source service proxy that's you know widely used to provide abstracted, secure, authenticated, you know, and encrypted comms between services, right? And so instead of having this logic embedded in backend client application libraries, you can instead teach Envoy, which sits in front of these services, to think about these identities so that the backends rarely have to even be changed. All of that identity, attestation, authentication, and encryption flows can happen from one Envoy 
instance to another Envoy instance. And so it's a nice way of injecting in strong forms of, you know, very, very granular authentication without necessarily having to disrupt your backend services in a material way. That makes sense. And I think like that's uh, a good transition here. Like Spiffy is a spec, you know, I, I think I understand what the spec is describing and how it works with, you know, two supported methods, X509 and JWT tokens. But now I want to like continue to dig into Spire a little bit more. So Spire is in a separate CNCF project right now, but it is an implementation of the Spiffy spec. And when you talk about using Envoy to help bootstrap, um, that's all work that lives in the Spire project, correct? That's correct. That's correct. So yeah, so when we launched the effort, we launched the effort by making sure that we had a separate spec and an implementation of the spec because we felt as though you know, the world is pretty darn big and there's going to be plenty of organizations and plenty of people with great ideas that might not necessarily all be convergent. So we wanted to make sure that the specification was out there for people to to rally around and and decide which you know implementation made sense. You know, we uh, as a team, when we started Sidetail and we built our initial community, all started working together on Spire, uh, which you know, as far as as I'm concerned, is you know still the de facto kind of implementation. But there are others that are issuing, you know, and implementing the Spiffy specification in in various forms and fashion. That includes projects like Istio. Istio has a component called Citadel, which is using the Spiffy IDs for all of its workloads. Inside of HashiCorp, you've got the Console Connect office. You know, it's the service mesh offering that uses Spiffy to establish service identities. Um, you've got something called Kuma as well, which you know auto generates these Spiffy compatible certificates to identify services and workloads running in their mesh. So these are some projects that are actually using Spiffy. We also have folks that are increasingly consuming Spiffy. So Envoy, we've talked about, right? We've you know, we've been able to uh, adapt Envoy so that you can use Spiffy IDs to establish mutual TLS connections between Envoy proxy. Uh, Pinterest has a project called Knox, where customers of Knox can authenticate to Knox using Spiffy identities. And then we also have the Ghost Tunnel proxy, which comes out of the Square uh, engineering team, where they can use Spiffy IDs to establish mutual TLS connections between Ghost Tunnel proxies as a whole. So we have a set of increasing number of issuers and a set of increasing number of consumers that are of varying forms adopting the Spiffy standard and also building upon the Spire implementation. So if I want to add Spire into my application, I mean, it sounds like you mentioned earlier, I don't have to go make a bunch of code changes, add a new library in, implement that all. Envoy's one method. Is it as easy as just literally adding a sidecar in and that'll bootstrap the identity services for my microservices? It's it, yes, there is Envoy right there. In in the case of Envoy, right, one of the components of Envoy is this uh, is this thing called the Secrets Discovery Service or SDS. And Envoy uses the SDS to retrieve and maintain its updated secrets from any SDS provider. So basically, what we're doing is we're making Spire one of those secret providers, so that transparently, whenever Envoy needs a secret to be able to utilize for authentication for encryption, it can just lean on the underlying Spire infrastructure and then you're off to the races. So if you've implemented Envoy correctly and with standard formats, you can pick up some of the integrations that we've done with that Envoy project so that you've basically got that running. If you don't use Envoy, you've got the idea of sidecars. You can run these things as sidecars as well and get the same benefit instead of having to necessarily roll it into the backends itself. And can you help explain a little bit more about 
what's involved in that bootstrapping process. Bootstrapping crypto and identity is hard, and that's what Spiffy Inspire in particular is doing. Like, what happens if I have the sidecar injected into one of my pod specs and spin it up in Kubernetes? What does that actually do? So let me let me take you through the basic bootstrapping process that we're going through itself, because I think that's probably a worthwhile exercise to kind of talk people through as a whole. So first and foremost, what we're doing is just kind of, and we've got this document on our website, so you can you can obviously follow along as well. But it's a good way to kind of understand what's happening here. And here's how it basically works, right? So first and foremost, you're going to launch a Spire server on some host that you have. You know, in, running inside your organization, right? Um, that Spire server is then going to automatically generate something called a set of trust bundles, right? And these trust bundles basically define, you know, what are the world of SVIDs that are available in a given trust domain that any given workload, should it receive an SVID from some other service, can then go query against to determine whether or not this is a valid, you know, identity and what the authentication and attestation flows should look like for that, okay? So first you've got the Spire server that's installed. Then there's an assumption that you've got Spire agents that are running on whatever nodes that you plan on using. So your nodes could be plain vanilla VMs, it could be you know, sidecar, it could be running a sidecar proxies on Kubernetes pods itself, it doesn't really matter to us. When the agent turns on, the first thing it's gonna go do is it's gonna go perform an, a process called node attestation. And so what node attestation is, is is a process to basically prove to the Spire server the identity of the node that the agent itself is running on. So before the Spire server starts communicating and sharing privileged information with the Spire agent, the server is basically saying, hey, who are you? Prove to me that you're running on a legit system, et cetera, et cetera. So for example, if we had an agent performing node attestation on an AWS EC2 instance, it might you know, tap into the AWS instance identity document that is a privileged API that Amazon produces, and then it sends that over to the server over a TLS connection using you know, a, a bootstrap bundle that's pre-configured on the agent itself. Right? So we had to ship something with the agent so that it can establish an initial TLS connection back to the server itself so that we didn't have that going over open, non-encrypted communications as a whole. And so once it sends whatever proof it needs to to the server, the server says, cool, I need to go verify this. So in this case, the Spire server would say, well, I see this is a AWS instance identity document. I know how to go read that. Let me go ask AWS to go validate this. It sends a request down to the AWS APIs to acknowledge the document is valid. If that document is then valid, the server basically says, cool, I see that this is legit. Let me go see what else I can actually lean on from the platform in terms of being able to do any of this node uh, and node resolution activities. And then it then says, okay, agent, you're now, I've confirmed you're legitimate. Here is an SVID, right, which basically is the identity of the agent itself, right? We're not even talking about workloads at this point. We're just talking about bootstrapping the underlying systems. So now we've Bootstrap the identity of the agent on the host itself. It now has that legitimate document because we've verified that through this backend uh, attestation flow. The agent then contacts the server using that SVID and its new TLS client certificate to obtain whatever registration entries it needs to be able to serve and sign any given workload SVIDs. And so now at this point, 
the system is fully bootstrapped. And then what happens is the agent then turns on something called the workload API. This is the interface, the northbound interface to any workload that's going to spin up on that host itself or on that node itself. So now let's assume that a workload spins up on that host. What would need to happen in the backend application is that there would have to be some configuration that says, hey, upon boot, right, as part of a config script or boot script, one of the first activities has to be to call this workload API, right? And it can do so in an unprivileged manner. You don't have to authenticate to the workload API. And so when the workload calls down to the workload API from that agent running on the same node, that request is basically saying, hey, agent, I'm a new workload. I don't know who I am. Tell me who I am. What the agent then does says hello, right? And it begins this workload attestation process by calling its different workload attesters and providing them, for example, with the process ID of the workload process itself. So it goes through this iteration where it says, okay, I see your new workload running on the same node that I'm on. Let me go see if I have a match against all the other set of identities that have been pre-designed and pre-designated by the centralized team. And it then goes and runs through a variety of matches. If it doesn't find a match, it doesn't give it an identity. It says, sorry, you don't have an identity. And so now the operator can say, okay, well, this thing didn't get an identity from the underlying system. Do I want to keep booting this thing up? Do I want to raise a flag? What do I want to do there? And that's really up to the operator to decide what they want to do in terms of allowing that workload to continue running or not. But let's assume we do find a match, right? When we do find a match, what ends up happening is that the agent will then basically issue to the workload the correct SVID itself. And that SVID can either be delivered to it, as we said beforehand, in the form of either that JSON web token or in the form of an X509 certificate. And then we would deliver that to whatever system uh, is requesting it in this case here. If there was a non proxy sitting in front of the, of, the, of the service, it would basically be a transparent transaction with the actual Envoy service itself where all of those SVID X509s are held. Uh, if there was no Envoy and it was held directly in the backend, the backend client library would be aware of that. Or in the case of the pod itself, the pod would be given that, that, that X509 certificate. Uh, or that sidecar would be given the next five certificate as well. So you described the the bootstrapping process really well, and I get that. There's a lot of complexity that Spire's handling for us. What about rotation? Does Spiffy and Spire start thinking about, like, these are short-lived credentials, right? So at some point, if my pod happens to live for a long time, that's going to expire, I need to handle rotation of the certificate. And how does that work? Yeah, it's a good question. So the general idea of rotation is that this is something that we want to make configurable by the operator, right? So based on whatever kind of threat modeling, based on whatever type of scenario you have in place for a given workload, based on the geography, based on the sensitivity of the information that's processing, and based on whatever factors you care about, right? And that's the key point, is that we don't know what you care about. We built a system in place such that there is a TTL process so that for any given SVID that's generated, it can be pre-designated with a certain TTL that the entire Spire system is aware of, right? And so at the point where that SVID reaches the end of its TTL, it would then effectively force a reattestation of that workload so that we have to go back and say, okay, this cert is no longer valid. If we want to keep serving up legitimate comms, we need to go make sure and reattest the system. 
And so what it will then do is it will go right back through that attestation process. The agent will go back and check that process ID. It will go check its table to see what corresponding identities it has. If any of those factors of attestation have changed, it will just automatically pick it up re-verify those factors against that requesting workload. And if the match is still found, it will then issue it a brand new certificate. If a match is not found, it basically doesn't have a legitimate certificate anymore. And then again, out of band, it can issue some sort of an alert or some sort of secondary kind of notification that says, hey, we've got something wrong here. There's not a match. And then we can actually go triage and debug whatever is happening after that. But that's a second order consideration. Okay. Yeah, it's a complex problem that you're attempting to solve here. I'm curious why, when you created the project, why you, the team decided to donate it to the CNCF and make it a CNCF project. Can you help explain that backstory a little bit? Yeah, no, for sure. So maybe just take a step back. Technologies like identity or concepts like identity, uh, specifically around service-to-service identity, are not for the faint of heart. They're very complicated, right, in terms of the implementations, the standards, the technology, the crypto. There's a lot going on. And there's a lot going on at a layer of the infrastructure that not a lot of enterprise developers really understand intimately. Not a lot of security folks understand intimately. And so we realized that if we were going to be proselytizing kind of newer concepts, you know, born from older ideas similar in nature, we felt like the most appropriate thing to do was to make sure that this was going to be built out in the open, right? So first and foremost, what we wanted to build this in the open so that we could be very transparent to anybody that has questions about how we're doing, you know, what kind of crypto we're adopting, how are we doing key exchange, how are we doing bootstrapping, so that we can have the best and the brightest come, poke, and prod, and contribute to make this as robust and bulletproof as possible. So first and foremost, we wanted it to be open. After we decided that we were going to make it open, we decided that that it needed to be held in an organization that we thought represented and embodied the characteristics of the stewardship of great open source projects like Kubernetes. And so that naturally led us to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. So that's why we ended up um, bringing this project to the CNCF and offering it to them. And then along the way, the CNCF project through its organization and leadership uh, and its community realized that these two projects were pretty critical for continuing to promote some of these cloud-native models like container orchestration and beyond. Can you explain the governance model that you're currently adopting for Spiffy and Spire? Yeah, sure. So right now, uh, there's this two layers of governance inside of the project. So there is something called the Spiffy Technical Steering Committee, So this is an organization comprised of a number of individuals whose responsibility is to provide broad governance of of the project itself. The the TSC itself, you know, it has responsibility over the direction of the project. It's got, you know, oversight in terms of the contribution policy, things of that sort. Um, It is not necessarily responsible for kind of the day-to-day review and approval of any given PRs that are submitted by anybody to the project itself. Instead, you can think of it more like a, a, a broad general oversight group that you know whose primary job is to make sure that the entire project is staying on the rails and directionally heading in the direction that we've planned for in the long term. Um, the TSC is comprised of at least five members. Um, we have a whole bunch of rules 
around what that structure looks like, voting, you know, diversity and representation of organizations, term, things of that sort that you can read all about as a whole. So in addition to the technical steering committee, we have maintainers like any other project itself. You know, this set of maintainers have a variety of activities. We are looking for people that are active specific contributors. You know, these folks have to respond to PR review requests. They're responsible for ensuring that you know, any code submissions meet any of our coding conventions. They're consistent with our goals and directions of the project. And then, you know, they're also responsible for, for merging those PRs in as well. We have a set of maintainers as well. Uh, some that come from the, the Sightail team, some that come from outside the Sightail team as well. And we're always looking for more uh, maintainers um, to come on board and help share the load. You mentioned, you know, a couple of times there, like ensuring that the project's moving directionally where you want it to go. Where is that? Like what is on the roadmap and what are the next things that you're trying to work on and deliver for Spiffy and for Spire? Yeah, so something like this, you know, and we've worked on for the last two years, really making sure that we had a solid core engine, right? In terms of making sure that the specs we're looked at a thousand different ways, open for a lot of, of interpretation and analysis, and then to make sure that we see some level of stabilization on what the specification calls for and what it doesn't call for. We've done the same thing with the initial implementation in Spire by making sure we built a, a strong, scalable, flexible, and expandable Spire attestation engine that people can then kind of build upon and build around to do something with these specifications inside of their enterprise as a whole. One of the things that we're spending time on over the, as a community over the next you know, 12 to 18 months is to continue to focus on scale, to continue to focus on what does it mean to run Spire in production, and what does it mean to expand the, the set of integrations of Spire into third-party systems that might need to become spiffy inspire aware so those are three kind of top level goals that we have here the first one in terms of scale comes primarily from some of our implementers right if you go to any of our community days we run community days every quarter we open it up to everybody in the community and it's a good opportunity for everybody to kind of showcase what it is that they're doing with spiffy what are their use cases and, and where they're going it's no shock or surprise that you know Uber is one of the participants in the Spiffy community. They're obviously you know you know moving forward with you know some of the technologies, and I, I can't go too much of the details, but they're operating at a scale that is going to be really pressing us as a project against the boundaries of thinking about what does it mean to deploy SVIDs at the scale that Uber operates. So there's a number of things that fall out from that. That if you go into our backlog, you can see how it instantiates in terms of the types of PRs and the types of choke points and scaling components we need to deal with. That's one part of it. On the production side, it's a lot of it is tooling, right? I want to be able to have the ability to plug in my existing operations tooling and understand, you know, what's going on with our spiffy systems. I want to have granular reporting. I want to have metrics that I can actually be able to start understanding and analyzing to determine if I'm seeing any kind of, you know, funkiness or flapping or any kinds of failures that might indicate something that I need to go, go, go look at, right? You got to remember that Spire is at the base, right? If you're going to adopt this, it sits at the base of your entire platform. And so there's a lot of dependencies on this thing working really, really well. And if it's ever 
we need a, as early a signal as possible to identify any kind of issues so that we can actually address that so that it can continue to serve whatever downstream systems and processes an enterprise has in place. And again, you'll see PRs in the backlog that correspond to some of these production-oriented issues. And then lastly, as I said, you know, expanding the support, right? Expanding the integrations into third-party systems, third-party clouds, I should say, you know, being able to increase and make more easier the set of plugins that we can offer for, you know, orchestrators like Kubernetes, expanding the coverage across more service proxies, looking at direct backend database integrations so that you could perhaps even terminate and use SVIDs inside of a, a database itself. It just, there's a, a number of existing systems that need to become spiffy and spire aware. And that's being driven by, um, by where our community is taking us as a whole. As I said at the earlier part of this conversation, one area in particular that everybody seems to be coming at us with right now is serverless. And so we're spending quite a bit of time looking at what does it mean to provide spiffy SVIDs to serverless instances running on any of the public cloud providers uh, as a starting point? How does that work? How do you authenticate there? How do you attest that? You know, for something that is even more ephemeral than the idea of a container. So that's another area of major work that you're going to see coming forward from us in the next uh, next 12 months. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to kind of understand a little bit about that because that's actually a great question that you just asked. Like, if I'm going to run a bunch of Lambda functions on AWS, like, could I do it today with Spiffy Inspire or is it just kind of in the design phases right now? It's just in the design phases right now. So we just actually spun up a working group inside of the, the, the project to kind of look at this more specifically. Actually, Square just released something that talks about utilizing Spiffy Inspire in the context of AWS Lambda functions. So of the organizations that we know of, they're the ones that have taken the furthest steps in terms of thinking about how to make attestation work in the context of at least AWS Lambda functions. So I can point you at some of that as well. But the working group is, you know, their job is to take a couple of steps back and see, well, what else do we need to be thinking about more broadly? Are there fundamental common elements or characteristics of of what we are as a community calling a serverless function that we can then encode and say, this is the baseline implementation to attest serverless. And then that might be more nuanced based on implementations from platform provider to platform provider. Cool. So kind of the last question that I have for you around the roadmap is Spire and Spiffy have been around for three and a half years, pretty mature, pretty stable, ready to run in production. Are there like, specific use cases that you're looking to see more of, you know, like other than integrations and things like this, any anything new that you would love to see more use cases that you're waiting on or any thoughts around taking it out of the incubation phase and applying for graduation in the CNCF? You know, not, not I mean, there's the, we have a whole bunch of use cases that we can go through. I mean, and, and I can I can point you at a link to that. We've got, you know, being able to establish a mutual TLS connection between two specific identified workloads, where you know there isn't necessarily a load balancer or some sort of a proxy in between, so direct backend to backend kind of communications, which we've seen in a lot of enterprises. We want to be able to support that with middleware in between. We want to support that with envoys more richly. We want to support authenticating to backend data stores more richly. We want to expand the scope of the cloud platforms that we're supporting as well. We want to support more 
secrets management systems, right? There's we shouldn't assume that the world just all of a sudden woke up and was never doing something beforehand. People have been using secrets for a long time. They've been using projects like you know, Vault from HashiCorp and others to be able to still use static credentials. Well, if we wanted to bootstrap trust from a workload to HashiCorp itself, can we use Spiffy Inspire to do that, for example? So there's a number of places where Spiffy Inspire can can actually provide value. There's there's interesting use cases around authenticating to a message queue like RabbitMQ. There's things like, you know, being able to tap into you know, notaries that you can only attest using signed workloads via notary, for example. I think the point here is that there's an ecosystem within the cloud-native landscape of technologies that go hand-in-hand that have their own authentication and identity needs, but then also can be part of the authentication flow from one workload talking to another. And so broadly speaking, we're following our community, seeing what components are being really used, and then taking our cue from them to kind of prioritize the work that we as a community do to better support and simplify whatever combination of of open source and commercial technologies we need to support as a whole. So if I have a Kubernetes cluster running or non-Kubernetes, but I'm running containerized workloads and you know, this is still a big problem. And Spiffy Inspired do a lot of the hard work, the heavy lifting, you know, give me best practices to follow. Do you have a any roadmap or guidance for somebody for how maybe they can divide it into like a smaller chunk and get started and deliver some some value quickly and be able to not think about how am I going to like take my 150 or you know 15,000 microservices and and apply identity to all of them but what what do you what do you recommend for somebody just getting started yeah i think it's a it's a daunting challenge to say the least i think for most organizations you know if you're going to get started with this it's more likely that you've got some sort of a kind of an operations SRE, you know, security engineering organization that is probably, you know, six to 12 to 18 months out from really standing up a, an initial, you know, almost like a test cluster in a public cloud provider. They can prove, you know, replicates existing controls. And if it doesn't replicate it, evolves the state of the art of those controls to utilizing new technologies, whether it's things like Spiffy Inspire and beyond as a whole. And in those situations, it usually doesn't start with 15,000 microservices. It usually starts with one, right? Start with one microservice that you intend to move out to a more dynamic computing environment. It happens to be running on public cloud if that's the model of operation you're going to be running on. And then work through the simple scenario of figuring out how you would actually bootstrap that trust into that single instance so that you can then have that instance of that workload have its estimate identity that it could then use to communicate with another system. So bootstrap trust into one system and then figure out where it needs to communicate to. If it's going to need to communicate to something back out into the enterprise data center over a VPN or something like that, that's fine. Then comes the next part of being able to teach the backend system how to actually parse these spiffy identities as a whole. Now, some of that work is being done in the open. A lot of that's being done you know, on the commercial side. Cytel's company was working on those commercial bids. Others, I think, were looking at this as well. So there's a lot that's happening there um, to kind of facilitate early stage trying and testing of these technologies from cloud to on-prem, cloud to cloud as a whole. But yeah, starting with one implementation, right, in the public cloud, determining whether or not you're going to be adopting kind of the, the, the service proxy model or not, 
right? You have to answer some of these questions. And then once you've answered those questions, you can then join the Spiffy Slack channel, join our Spiffy website, and you can get connected with a number of folks who have already done what you're probably going to do and could provide you with a couple of reference examples that tell you all you need. We've worked hard from a documentation standpoint to try to provide as much knowledge to the community about being able to use Spiffy Inspire in different environments with different combinations of technologies. We keep going back to Envoy because Envoy tends to be the most obvious way in which people think about introducing service management concepts into their enterprise. And if you do so, we've got lots of documents that talk about how to plug Spire and Envoy together. If you don't want to go down that path and you want to do something a little bit more bespoke, a little bit more you know, tied to the client backends, our documentation has a lot more details there as well. Cool. Spiffy Inspire started three and a half years ago at Sightail, and now it's part of HPE. Since the acquisition, has that changed? You know, HPE is a much bigger company than a startup. Has that changed anything in like the day to day, the operations, the roadmap? What what impact has that had on the project, if any? Yeah, there's two things that that have impacted. So we should probably go back to why the acquisition happened. Right, this acquisition happened because as a company, you know, HPE is realizing that there is a tremendous amount of opportunity to deliver value to an existing massive you know, customer base that we have you know, from years and years of selling you know, amazing hardware and software and beginning to deliver value increasingly to operations and application developers in the enterprise landscape. And so when this acquisition happened, we very much believed that there was an opportunity to help provide stronger roots of trust to the world of enterprise that ties together kind of the software-centric attestation you know, bits that we've been working on as an open source project and as an early stage company, but then tying it together with the fact that we have strong understanding of hardware, hardware roots of trust, and more that can, for the enterprise, you know, change the game in terms of how they can establish strong forms of rooted trust all the way down to you know, chips and TPMs and things of that sort all the way and then surface that up to any given instance of a workload, whether it's running on HPE servers running in the data center or perhaps in a private cloud or in a public cloud even for that matter. So for us, Spiffy Inspire continued to serve as a pretty foundational component of our security architecture as we move forward with technologies like the Esmeralda container platform and the data fabric and some of the other technologies we have coming out in the future. Um, And so that means that we're continuing to expand our support within HPE. We're looking for great engineers, great operations folks who've got the desire to kind of step in and work on some bleeding edge technologies like this, but to also connect bleeding edge with the existing, right? In this world at HPE and even before HPE, it's not enough just to hope that the world wakes up and says, yeah, we'll all evolve to containers eventually, or we'll all evolve to Spire. You have to light a path, right? And you have to light a path, and you have to sometimes hold people's hand through that path into that future as well. And so at HPE, we're going to be spending some time and some energy and resources to do that with our existing customers as a whole. As far as our work on the open source side, nothing stops. Uh, in fact, we're going to be even contributing more so on the open source projects than ever beforehand. And I'm excited that we get to do so with a bunch of other organizations that are also taking those steps forward. Us, other vendors in the software ecosystem, other end customers that are taking uh, adopting this. It's becoming really, really interesting. And that, in part, is why this project was recently 
promoted to the incubating phase, right? Because I think the community recognized that we're seeing the uptick we need to that you know justifies moving it to the incubating phase and hopefully to the graduated phase at some point in the future as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the opportunity to come, you know, work for a mature company like HPE, but actually only work on having the opportunity to work on this bleeding edge open source software and getting paid for it. It's like, it sounds like a, a great opportunity out there. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a great opportunity for a lot of folks that, that want to be able to kind of push the envelope, but, but do so within an organization that I think has a tremendous base to, to work off of. And, and, and that's what got me so excited. That's what got my investors and my, my co-founders so excited about the possibility of, of joining forces with HPE. And so we're going to go do that now. Right. You know, I think it's, it's difficult uh, in a podcast, right. To, to really effectively kind of showcase the power of this technology. I think for people that have been tackling, you know, this world of security and service authentication, as they're moving to more dynamic computing platforms, the ways in which they have historically done service to service authentication are absolutely going to show their wear. Not because those ideas were bad by any stretch. I mean, ideas, you know, develop, they evolve, they get better, hopefully over time. But I think what happened in this case is you saw a magnitude jump from the scale and the dynamism of computing that came with the introduction of containers and container orchestrators. And I think that technology leap is changing the way in which we think about the longevity of a given workload, you know, going from, you know, spinning up a single use server in a rack and having a a one-to-one mapping of a workload running on that server for, you know, the next 12 months, right, without ever changing it, to that thing lasting for five minutes, being torn down, and then 10 minutes later having a thousand instances of that same exact workload spun up you know, for another seven minutes and then having that torn down, that volatility up and that volatility down, I think is really where you're going to start to see the benefits of technology like Spiffy Inspire because it goes along for the ride. It does so automatically and uh, keeps you apprised of what's happening there. That I think is something that's difficult to convey in this podcast. And so I would encourage your listeners to to take a look at our website, spiffy.io. There's a bunch of information there, use cases, case studies, videos of people that have been using this where you can learn from as a community to understand what of those use cases might be applicable to where you and your organization are going as a whole team. That's all we have time for today. If you're the maintainer of a CNCF project and would like to be a guest on this show, head over to kublist.com. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks and content on sales, marketing, product, and more for founders of developer tools companies. And this podcast is brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.